You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we're at the Extreme History Headquarters, speaking via Zoom with Anthony Wood about his new book, Black Montana, Settler Colonialism and the Erosion of the Racial Frontier, 1877 to 1930. We are excited to talk to Anthony, um, and we know Anthony from when he used to live here in Montana and go to school here. Um, But before we get to that, Crystal, tell me how your week was. What's been going on? Well, this was a super busy week. Um, (laughs) I was in Helena on Monday, and I was in Virginia City on Wednesday, and I was at Crow Agency yesterday, and in Billings today. You were all over. You were I'm, also at my house. For I was part of at that your too. house. I don't even know what night that was. That was um, Tuesday, Tuesday night, right? Tuesday. Yes. Yeah. So the reason for the the marathon travel around Montana was that we were filming. The Story of Us, which is the documentary that we've been talking about for months now, it feels here, like. Um, here it's really happening. Here it's this happening. This is it, right? This, it happened. Wow. <laughs> we filmed. What was that like? It was so amazing. So the the company that we're working with, the film production company, is called North by Northwest. And so they brought their crew out. And I've been working with a woman. Her name is Kimberly Hoberg. And she works for North by Northwest. And her and I have kind of been working on this project for probably about three years now. It's been in the works for a really long time. Most of that time was fundraising. But um, we got to the point this week, we're ready to film. The crew came out. We filmed the entire thing. um, You guys had already done the research, mm -hmm. come up with the questions Mm -hmm. for interviews Mm -hmm. and also the locations for where filming would happen. So you had to have that all done so that this could all happen in about four or five days. Right. We have to have, we had a really super detailed schedule so that the filmmakers could just come in and shoot and, you know, knew exactly where they were going, have the interviews coming in. I mean, it would, it was just super fast so that we could get the maximum amount of their time this week while they were here. So, you know, because they say in the film business, time is money. So, <laughs> <laughs> time is money flowing out the window, it out seems like window. in this case. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. we had a really good week and we got it all filmed and we had some amazing interviews within that. And we, um, used your land, Nancy, to film part of it on, which was great. And we also uh, filmed in some very historic locations like the Capitol, Montana's Capitol building at Historic Virginia City on the Crow Reservation. And so it was just a whirlwind, but it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing film. It features four historic Montana women, Sarah Bickford, a black woman who lived in Virginia City, Maggie Smith Hathaway, a uh, one of our first legislators here in Montana who represented um, Ravalli County, and 
The third person was Rose Hum Lee, a Chinese woman who grew up in Butte, first-generation um, Chinese-American. And then the fourth person is Susie Walking Bear Yellowtail. And her granddaughter, Jackie Yellowtail, um, talks about her in our in the interview, and so it it's just it was just so special. So that's amazing. Yeah. I I enjoyed the part I got to mm-hmm. see where Shane Doyle came out with three of his kids, yeah. all dressed in regalia that crow people would be in if they were doing a powwow or dancing. And um, he drummed, and his three children danced. Yeah. And I have to say the the film. Crew was amazing, um, but I I felt like those kids were having to dance a lot. <laughs> it was great that the film crew had snacks and water that yeah, they brought out. Yeah. But after I had to leave, they they then were getting out a drone. So it yeah. wasn't just the full on film, but it was. But they were amazing. So it they was, were having fun. It was but, Shane, yeah. and then and then his daughters Ruby and was it. Lillian, 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 and Quana was yeah, and then Blake was the one who well, wasn't. Blake was Blake was in oh, it. Blake was the one dancing. Quana decided he didn't want to do it, so okay. that was fine. And so the three of them danced, and Florence, their older daughter. Yeah was going to do it as well, but she had play practice, so she couldn't be part of it. But well, we, I hope they went out to a nice dinner after. Because so those too. kids really, <laughs> they worked yeah, hard they worked that. hard. That, that, and that uh, was beautiful. Yeah. Ian came out with his big um, format, his large format camera, yeah. those old-fashioned ones you see people with. And he was hoping to do portraits, but but the filming was serious. Yeah. So he, he just stayed out of the way. Yeah. Um, but we were so excited to see that. And then I had to leave early because mm-hmm. another project that you're involved with, so the building that um, Mocha Boutique is in, uh, we're doing a story on it for Bozeman Life magazine, and you're writing that. You've been researching that history of all the other businesses that have been there before, when the building was originally built, a lot of interesting stories. So um, Babs Noel from Alara and I had our photo shoot that I had to go over to. So we got to do that. And then they actually photographed um, my staff in ours because they're going to do a little profile on our boutique to go along with your historic you know, That's discussion great. of the building. So we're excited for that to come out next week. So busy week too um, for us over there, and um, and then I'm headed to New York uh, tomorrow wow. for my first business trip. Um, oh, that's exciting! I Nancy. know, so I'm very excited. Yeah. But um, but we should get back to our guest, we who should. we are thrilled to talk to. So we're Anthony, so welcome to, to the show! Here. Yay! Thank you, guys. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having so, me. Anthony, we are we are thrilled, and we want to welcome you and and your sleeping child in the background, and if your wife is there too. And um, I want to start off by introducing you to our our listeners with a little bit of background. So Anthony Wood is a historian of the American West. He grew up in Anaconda, Montana, before attending Carroll College in Helena. Starting in 2015, Anthony worked for the Montana Historical Society as a researcher and historical consultant on their award-winning Montana's African American Heritage Resources Project. After completing a master's degree at Montana State University in 2018, he began his doctoral studies at the University of Michigan. Anthony is currently writing his dissertation, which is titled, 40 Years Within the Veil, the New Black Towns of the Rocky Mountain West from Greater Reconstruction to the Great Migration. 
In July of this year, he published his first book, which we're so excited. Congratulations. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, that book's entitled Black Montana, Settler Colonialism and the Erosion of the Racial Frontier, 1877 to 1930, published with the University of Nebraska Press. Welcome, Anthony. We're so glad you're here with us. And and we've known you for quite a few years now. I don't know. I was trying to think how many years it's been. But I first met you when you were in graduate school at MSU, Montana State University. And you became involved with the Extreme History Project. We roped you into all sorts of fun things. You did a lecture for us on some of your, your master's thesis research. And then you also were a walking tour guide for us for right. a time. And yep. then the craziest thing we roped you into was the Pachachka. <laughs> That's right. You were part of the Pachachka. Oh my gosh. That Which time bound speaking engagement. Time yes. bound is, is, the, <laughs> is the word for it. So it's um, six minutes and 40 seconds um, presentations. And, uh, and, and you're very time bound when you're doing them. And what I remember about that is um, we had a, a lot of different. Um, history folks do this certain pachachka. So there was probably 10 of us or something. I don't know. Probably, it was quite a few. And um, and I remember that they had a schedule. They had a list of, you know, who went when. And they somehow they got the schedule mixed up. And uh, you had to come. Do you remember this, Anthony? Right. I was thinking I was going after, you know, maybe several other people. And then suddenly I had to run around from my seat. Yes. Well, no, you were, you were in the restroom and they, you heard your name over the speaker saying. The speakers. Yeah, you're yes. right. Okay. That's and right. so you had to come running in <laughs> oh, from the restroom. Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> and you made I it. probably have like, a, a, you know, suppressed that. <laughs> I think you probably have. <laughs> And you, but you made it and you were fine and you sounded wonderful. It was a great presentation. So yeah, so that, so we wrapped you, roped you into all sorts of fun things. But, um, but yeah, so, um, but I wanted to start with the first question, Anthony, and, and we always ask our, our guests how they got into the field of history. And so I just want to ask you that. What, when did you first get interested in history? What brought you into this field? So I think I wanted to be a like professional historian or even a professor very young, actually. Um, and it's hard for me to really pinpoint where and when that came from. Um, when I was growing up, my dad was finishing his PhD in theology um, and had books from his doctoral work all over the house, a lot of them in like Hebrew and Greek. And I just remember looking at the old, like, you know, languages that weren't English um, and weren't even in, you know, the, the the lettering that I was familiar with as a child. I think it was very cool. And somehow like maybe associating that with like Indiana Jones or some kind of quintessentially like this cultural uh, figure that did things vaguely with the past. Um, but so I was, I was interested in from, from that angle. And as I got older and realized that like what my dad was doing writing a dissertation it actually appealed to me like the thought was like oh you get that long to like work on something and you know become an expert and I, I think that was very appealing um I think another element of it is probably my, my mom has still does have this deep love of old things that she will find and collect 
um, you know, garage sales or just like out in the woods and like we'll be walking and she'll pick up some, like an old piece of you know, those ceramic tops that are on the top of telephone wires, and she'll just like carry it home and they'll be like decorating our house. So somehow like this, her, her fascination with these kind of old objects, maybe for you as archeologists kind of appreciate that. Um, that was, I think I remember that very early on is like somehow like that connection to the past was cool to me. Um, and she didn't, it wasn't that she like loved them personally. She just got excited about them finding them. And that I think kind of melded with um, the rest of my, my childhood. And my uncle was a history professor as well. So I kind of had a reference point that mm-hmm. that was a job. Um, although I think it was probably the kind of the, the introduction I had to like academia through my dad. And then, uh, yeah, my mom's love of old things and history just in the everyday world, kind of an emotional, but also like, really tangible material connection to it. So. so Anthony, did you know when you started at Carroll College that you wanted to major in history? Was that your intention when you went? Yes. I I start I mean I knew in in high school when I started like writing, you know, those essays about what you were going to do. It's like, oh I want to go study and become a historian. So I started um in the in Carol's uh, history program, I will admit, though, I was probably not a very good student when I first began. Um, oh, it took me a while to get I into, <laughs> <laughs> it took me a while to realize, like, oh, no, you actually have to, like, you know, pay attention and focus and read, like, actually read, um, which is still things I tell students now. You actually, actually have to read. Um, <laughs> and that took probably until my junior year to really sink in. But once it did, it was... Um, I, I mean, I was off from there. I was never going to do anything else. Um, I remember in your junior year of like an undergraduate, a lot of history programs still make you take like a historiography class. Oh, right. You, you know, write a big mm-hmm. paper and they're trying to get you to use different methods. And mm-hmm. I think I went downstairs in the library in Carroll College's um, library building and they had the repository of all the federal documents that were like declassified. And I think I picked up the introduction to the Iran Contra affair. Oh my. Which was then a 20, like it was a full shelf or two shelves of, you know, their, their investigations and the tower reports and the depositions of Oliver North. And, and it was just, I read, I read a lot of it, like way more than I ever needed to for the paper. And I just like, this is cool. Cause it was, it was like this big collection of, uh, complicated primary sources, but like right. real primary sources. And there was, there was still a question that I wanted to answer, you know, in that class about you know, how involved Ronald Reagan was in the Iran Contra fail from how, from how far back and how much did he know. And so I got really into like an investigative side of it. So, and that's as modern of history as I've ever done actually right. was in that. In but that, that gives you that, that fun, that feeling that I think we all get when we're doing, whether it's on the archeology span side or the history side, I think that quest to, to find answers to things, to go do the research, to at least come up with a better amount of knowledge to bring to bear on those questions. Mm-hmm. I think, I think maybe sometimes people don't always know that from the outside that it very much feels like mystery solving kind of excitement, you know, and you do get down those tunnels and rabbit holes where, Mm -hmm. I mean, I know just for doing research for papers, I often get on a complete side path and read way more than I need to about something. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that becomes 
another project later, you know. <laughs> but um, but I know that you um, we were talking about uh, in your intro that you had an internship, or you mentioned this in the in the forward of your book that really was pivotal to mm-hmm. you taking a look at African American history, black Montanans. Um, so talk a little bit about your time at Carroll and how that led to an internship with um, the Montana Historical Society and the State Preservation Office. Yeah. So in so that same year, my junior year of college, you're supposed to take like a historical practicum class that, you know, places you in some, I would say like a quasi-professional position. Um, but for a very long time, uh, Dr. Robert Swartout, who was at Carroll for many, many years and retired my senior year, he had always kind of tried to funnel students into the historical society because it was just so tangible and useful. Um, and they had so many great projects that it wasn't, it wasn't like a mindless internship where you go get coffee for people. You actually got to do work. Um, and I was so fortunate that he was still there and they were still kind of using that avenue for that particular class. Um, and the preservation office at the historical society um, picked me up for those credits. And at first, I think I was doing um, like an assortment of historical projects, one on uh, uh, women, uh, World War II pilots um, uh, flying the, the planes between bases in North America, which was really fun. That's Got very cool. That, yeah. that would have been uh, it. Yeah. Some biographies. I did my first kind of uh, historical talk at the historical society on that topic, um, kind of old school houses. Um, so a lot of research. And then right at the end, like right before I was done with the semester, they had, um, need of someone to go through these censuses for the African-American heritage resources project. Um, Kate Hampton, who was my supervisor and she's the community preservation coordinator there at SHPO. Um, she had been working on this project for a very long time since I think, I think 2005 or 2006, um, just like gaining, uh, momentum through, you know, writing, you know, grants here and there to try and pull in pieces. And they had enough information right when I got there. So really fortuitous, right when I got there, they had enough information that they were going to start kind of these big pushes to identify buildings for, uh, possible as possible candidates for historic preservation. Um, but they needed to figure out where buildings, you know, homes, businesses uh, of Montana's historic black community, they need to figure out where they might still be standing, um, which involved going through uh, a census starting in Helena, trying to find addresses and then taking those historic addresses from 1910 or 1920 or 1880, which are not the same all the time as today. And then using insurance like uh, Sanborn insurance maps that were uh, drawn up, you know, usually around in the, in the same time period and then try and figure out using Google earth to see if maybe (laughs) these are the same buildings, if they're in the same part of the lot or if they're the same materials. And then, because it's it's really you can't just you know you have thousands of buildings you can't just really go to the county courthouse and pull deeds for all of them um you could i mean that would be one way to do it that's great for one house it's a terrible method for many many buildings um, <laughs> it would be a very time consuming project you have to go to the county clerk and recorder's office and you know go through individual properties um, Oof, yeah so i was that like the legwork um 
I was not asked to do any like great analysis. Uh, I was not asked to think through the problems of uh, thinking about race in Montana or anything like that. I was really just looking for buildings that were still standing. Um, and I got really into it in that last part of the semester. Um, I was very, I, th I think I was very fast. I think they had given it to me thinking they would, I would get started. And I think like, you know, the next week I was done with the first session <laughs> and they were like, Oh, okay. That's <laughs> so probably because you were so interested in it. You right, know, it's probably right. fascinating yeah. to you. So you really spent the time mm -hmm. and just got it done. Yeah. Right. And there was, yeah, there was no desire on my part to, to, you know, space off and think about something else. Cause right. you know, finding these houses was so, so interesting. Um, and then at that, at the end of my semester, Kate Hampton asked if I wanted to come back um, and do a kind of a, another informal, um, I don't think it was through Carroll, but it was through a Carroll-related scholarship, kind of as a work study almost, um, to do the same project. Um, I did that my whole senior year, uh, had some really, you know, some great uh different ways the project went, which was fun because it was, it felt like I was a part of it, uh, like professionally um, while I was still in college. And then after that, I, they hired me as like a, a temporary uh, contractor to work, you know, on that particular project until I went to grad school. So, yeah. Would you, is there anything else you want to know about the, the project? Because it, it really is, it's really immense. Um, yeah. Okay. I don't know how much time I can spend and explain all that it is. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I guess one thing that I would just like to say about this project, maybe you could name the project, the, the name of the project, and then also talk about kind of where, what happened with this project, because I know mm -hmm. you guys got an award for that project. So maybe just speak a little bit to that. Yeah. So the project's official name, I, I believe, is the uh, Montana's African-American Heritage Places Project. Um, it has a website now, which they're kind of redoing as the, the administration turns over. They had a new system. So it's it's in the process of kind of being refurbished again. Um, but this website holds really an immense amount of information that's been collected. Uh, I like to think of it as its own kind of public history archive. Um, it has multiple uh, editions of the U.S. Census in which all African-American uh, residents in Montana from 1870, uh, not 1880, because that census was lost, uh, 1900, 1910, 1920, 1930, are all available. And you can look for people in towns. And, and that's really just a useful uh, source, considering that yeah. usually the, those names are like so disaggregated and pulled apart that it's hard to think about a community without doing a lot of work. Um, a lot of uh, essays and articles were written for the website. I wrote probably a dozen or so on various topics from, you know, history of black churches or the military. Um, they had some other wonderful historians that wrote on uh, women in Montana, the Montana, the, the Montana Federation of Colored Women's Clubs has, you know, a lot of written, has a lot written on it. That's all available. It has bibliographies and then it has, which I think are, kind of the highlight of it um all these oral histories that they've pulled together uh over over the years they got some grant money to do oral histories yeah. um, with black montanans from uh usually the generation which they were kind of growing up in the the middle part of the 20th century but they're really wonderful and they they link to other older oral histories that the scholar quintar taylor did in the 70s and 
and there's some story maps and fun visual aids. And I did some sketches and stuff of, of old buildings, what facades would have looked like. And I had a lot of fun with it, but it's, it's a really expansive project. And I think um, Kate Hampton uh, and Delia Hagen, who's the other historian who worked on it, who did their multiple properties, uh, national register nomination uh, forms, which are amazing. They're so well-written for, you know, government forms. You can actually read them and engage with them. That's all up there. Yeah. Um, they won, I think, I think it's 2017, the, like the national, the state and local uh, histories, like award of merit, um, which was, you know, that's a very big kind of organization across the entire country of all, you know, local historical uh, kind of organizations. Um, this project kind of won their, their right. big award, which is mostly testament to them and having this really kind of, I think, a capacious vision for what public mm -hmm. history could be at so many different levels. So mm -hmm. I was just really one fortunate to show up right when I did at the same moment and just got to do years of research essentially um, before I went to grad school, which is not at all how it usually goes. Right. So I was very intimi intimidated <laughs> by you as a master's student. And I, I feel like, okay, now I understand a little bit better how you already had such a handle on, but I think the serendipity yeah. goes both ways. You know, you feel like you got access to this, but I'm sure they were feeling, oh, wow, how did this right person show up, undergraduate mm -hmm. who has aspirations for graduate school? Because I've, I've heard you in classes speak on this topic and, and you handle this and treat this so well. And it's so important. And I think as we'll get to one of the best things you do is make the case for why it's so important. Mm -hmm. Not only is the material interesting and fascinating, but why it's so important to everybody um, who's living here and in other places and in, in the larger West in general. So I just, mm -hmm. I love, I love hearing how that, that whole thing kind of birthed this book mm -hmm. and then what will be your dissertation too. It's, it's mm -hmm. great, you know, mm -hmm. and then the fact that it came out of an award-winning project. Yeah. Right. Right. So if people want to look at that, they can just Google that and right. find you it. And, and it's Black a great History resource. in Montana. That's the first thing that shows up. Yep. Okay. Great. Yep. So it's a great resource. So then Anthony, after, after that wonderful experience, you decided to pursue a master's degree and came to Montana mm -hmm. State University. Um, mm -hmm. And and can you talk about your master's thesis and kind of how this work that you had been doing really influenced what you were going to do at MSU and kind of how you moved forward in that? Right. Um, I was kind of trying to think of this earlier today because it was it's, it's hard for me to remember exactly like my frame of mind. Yeah. Um, so I arrived in Bozeman in 2016. I knew I was going to write about um, black history in Montana generally, since I had all this research kind of at my disposal and already done um, and the interest in general, but I wasn't actually sure what it was going to look like. I thought maybe it would be something, you know, very simple, a standard short master's thesis, um, you know, picking a, I think maybe an interesting pocket of this history and really delving into it. I thought maybe that was my avenue. And then as I got there, I got introduced to the, you know, the joys of reading, graduate reading, um, which was something very different than I had ever experienced getting to read um, authors from really a wide array of disciplines. Uh, so standard, you know, historical narrative writers were wonderful, but also like post-colonial scholars and uh, cultural theorists. 
um, and, you know, historical materialist, like way beyond my, what I had experienced really as an undergrad. And I quickly decided, I think in the first semester that I was going to kind of wait to see what the project was really going to be um, based on what I was drawn to and the types of questions I wanted to answer. Um, and then in, I think the, the next like the winter, so 2017, I took uh, Mark Fiji's, his, uh, his uh, American West seminar. And this year, um, he had decided kind of for the first time to change it because he's an environmental historian and had always had a very particular lens that he had looked at the history of the American West. Um, and I think I, as I understand it, you know, from some prodding from other faculty members, uh, mostly Amanda Hendricks Komodo, uh, who also all know, um, he decided like, well, let's take a look at the West specifically from this framework of settler colonialism, which was, so in 2017, not a new field, but it was still like, looking back, I feel like it was still kind of peaking in many ways and how much people were talking about it and citing various authors. Um, So the entire semester was reading through the West um, in the, through the lens of settler colonialism. And in that class, all of these courses, I realized it's just, man, none of these authors are, they might talk about um, Black migrants in the West very briefly. They might talk about Black soldiers, but usually only in the context of being like used by an imperial state to conquer Western lands. And then they never mention them again. Um, And I had already done work on Black soldiers and specifically Black veterans. And I I was kind of, that was the first connection was like, well, I know they don't just disappear. They don't just go back somewhere. Most of them settle in Montana and they're part of this community. And in, I think, important ways acted as kind of certain pillars, especially for the black community, but also very vital members of the community, you know, at large. Um, So there was, I, in that class, I realized this is an interesting angle. It has lots of meaty theoretical questions that are great for graduate work. Um, but it was also just a totally new way of getting to look at uh, the, the body of research that I already had. Uh, so it made the project, which I had been doing for a year and a half, feel immediately brand new and fresh. Um, so then I didn't have to do that research. I really just went over it again with this new angle um, and immediately started writing. And I think I just wrote for 18 months. And when I was done, it was, you know, five chapters and then an introduction and a conclusion, which was quite a bit longer than what I've been told most master's thesis are supposed to be or even accepted. <laughs> so I have to thank, like, you know, Mark was fine with it, but it was really like the fact that Mary Murphy was okay with reading it. <laughs> that was my biggest hurdle <laughs> that she didn't say, nope, right, <laughs> cut right. it to 70 pages. But luckily she was, I don't think she had any inclination. She was also really supportive and helpful too so right right yeah yeah and so then this this master's thesis that you wrote became your book that you that we're going to be talking with you about today so um plus a little more um you have a little more in there (laughs) it grew somehow somehow it grew (laughs) (laughs) um i love hearing about how these these ideas that that turn into projects or books get started and it's it's fascinating it sounds like it was a the perfect combination of you you already had all this information 
And then hearing you talk about sort of being introduced to this idea of settler colonialism, that theoretical mm-hmm. framework. I mean, this is what graduate school is designed to do, right? All of a sudden, yeah. you're like, oh, wow. And because you were coming, it's so interesting, from looking at a, for a way to talk about black people, African-Americans in the West, you were the only one who was noticing what was missing. Like you're saying, mm-hmm. and I love how you talk about that in the introduction, that mm-hmm. this settler colonialism perspective was so much about the binary of, mm-hmm. of white and indigenous, mm-hmm. and sometimes African-Americans were on the side of also sort of the settler colonials, white colonial mm-hmm. people, but then there's this complicated middle ground that they hold because they don't really get afforded all those rights and things like that, mm-hmm. and they're coming out of slavery and reconstruction and and um mm-hmm. and then they don't end up staying for all these reasons that we'll get into but but it's so interesting to me that it takes somebody who's already got that knowledge to even notice what's not there mm-hmm. because if you ask other people well mm-hmm. why cuz i remember coming out here early on and saying to you well how come we only have african americans also in the town like why don't we see more people that are homesteading what was going on with that and I didn't know anyone who could answer that question. Like nothing had mm-hmm. been written on that, you know, mm-hmm. and you and you speak to sort of other aspects of wilderness and farmland and all these other things that are going on, which I feel like there was this big gap that people didn't even know was a gap because they didn't know that there really was a history there that mm-hmm. had been lost, you mm-hmm. know, and told. So I, I just find that whole story fascinating and, and it's fun to know how this book came to be. Um so with that, we want to dive in a little bit and and talk about, you know, African-Americans, of course, aren't indigenous t- to the Rocky Mountain West, to Montana. Um, and your book really starts by looking at this period after the Civil War ends and after um, Greater Reconstruction is, is starting to wind down. And that's this fascinating period. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember... Um, I read a book by Elliot West about yes. the Nez Perce, and he talks about this yes. period in the yes. West, and he mm-hmm. defined it, this period of greater reconstruction, which I remember Robert Rydell asking us, is, is, mm-hmm. does he make a good case? And I was like, he's got me. This is what brings the mm-hmm. whole nation together, because you've mm-hmm. got greater reconstruction, and then that's starting to end, and you had all these compromises about adding new states, and you get this this complicated issue of economics and race, and you have this settling of Native Americans, the last Indian wars, the settling on reservations, and this mm-hmm. real push to then mm-hmm. settle with white mm-hmm. settlers, Euro-Americans, the West. But in that mix, you also have... Um, free African-Americans now. And then when Reconstruction dies down, you have major issues in the South that are probably creating additional motivations um, to move West and take advantage of opportunities that are there. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that push and pull, factors that were Mm -hmm. maybe pushing people out of where they were coming from and pulling them towards places like Montana. And then what were they finding? What were they coming to? What did Montana look like in the late 1870s and early 1880s? Yeah, that's all a lot of really, I think, important context, which is in this in this book, at least it's I I try to, you know, name it up front and then move on to like some story. But I would love in my you know career to keep working on the question of what's happening at the end of greater reconstruction. Oh, I think that's the most I feel like it's the source of kind of all these issues now we're still having. Right. You know? yeah. So the push and pull factors, um, you I think you have to contextualize it within the end of greater reconstruction. Um 
the old paradigm of talking about it is that you have in the 1870s in places like Montana, you have the, you know, it's the capture of Chief Joseph, you know, that close to the Canadian border in 1877 or the, the various uh, massacres of indigenous men, women and children across Montana and, you know, the surrounding territories that's happening in the 1870s at the same time that in the South congressional reconstruction um, is, you know, violently in many cases uh, dealing with the inability to protect uh, free people, the right. inability to really make good on the promises of the reconstruction amendments uh, and really kind of this uh, uncertainty about what the nation actually is. Like what is the nation state? What How is the nation? I think there were deep um, questions and, and concerns and real yeah. fears. So now, yeah. now the scholarship on greater reconstruction, as I'm, you know, still encountering it, there is, I think, too much of a distinction between, you know, the story of race as it regards African-Americans is the side of the equation that's happening in the East and the South and the side of the equation that is uh, taking place in the indigenous West between white settlers and, and native peoples is the Western question. Um, but there is, there is, I mean, Montana is not by any means the only uh, way to problematize that you know, I think this the separation this rupture in that way of thinking about the time period so this book is really it's looking at the end of it because by looking at what happens right afterwards I can I, I think we can make a certain claim about the the significance of the moment itself um it's not you know separately it's not important for the south and then also important, but differently important for the West. It's really the same question. It's all re- it's all yeah. related, and I and yeah. I feel like there is more and more scholarship making those connections, mm-hmm. and yours is very much making that case as well. I think you do that really well. Um, yeah. But talk a little bit about what what then specifically yeah, what were, it, it was uh, like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So obviously, leaving at the end of. Uh, greater reconstruction if you are living if you're a, a black person living in the south or in the north um there is obviously tremendous uncertainty there's a also economic you know depressions in kind of every three years at, at that point for for a while um and to the west it, it it is at least in popular imagination that this is now finally a space where you don't have to worry about um, indigenous people as like a threat to some kind of uh, material well-being, um, at least after you know the end of the 1870s. So that, in popular imagination, kind of fueled a, a pull to the region for both black and white migrants. I argue um, African Americans have the added um, the added pull, I think, of escaping what is really quickly becoming evident as the the formation of Jim Crow. And uh, this a society of, of a complete and total separation and oppression um, and and kind of held up by violence. Um, so the, I, I, the the scholar Quintar Taylor had made this argument for a long time is like this is what made the West appear to be that new racial frontier uh, after, you know, the Civil War and Reconstruction generally. So I, I do agree with those poll factors in Montana. Um, we have a really wide variety of, you know, livelihoods and occupations that drew people. You have the railroads, which are, you know, at times a little bit later coming through in the 1880s and 1890s, they're still being built. You have a lot of mining in the 1860s and 70s, um, a lot of, you know, 
silver and copper smelting operations, especially in Newton Anaconda and Great Falls and East Helena. A lot of kind of jobs that are popping up both within uh, mining industries, but then kind of the adjacent communities that have to support huge labor forces. Um, so Montana in the 1870s, I, I still try to argue that even at the end, it is primarily kind of we can imagine like tiny islands of, of settlers within a sea of land that is uh, for the most part still occupied and controlled politically uh, by indigenous peoples. And by the 18, by the 1880s, uh, that is obviously a, a fast inversion that takes place where then rural population in Montana through the 1890s and early 1900s kind of explodes so much so that by 1910, Montana's population is 65% rural, a large homesteading bubble is, is, you know, forming in the 1910s, but the cities are growing as well. And it's in these cities where uh, over 90% of, of black migrants, black settlers to Montana arrive and begin, you know, forming uh, communities and putting down roots. Um, and so th these are really interesting spaces. I, I try to argue um, and within the seven or eight major cities in Montana, um, different towns have different kind of uh, occupational emphasis. There is a lot uh, of uh, work available, especially in the 18, late 1870s, 1880s, 1890s for African-Americans in what we would call like service sector jobs. But there's also a large growth in as those black communities grow, um, there is something that kind of looks very much like a black middle class, a black professional class that both serves the, the rest of the black community. Um, but also by the early 1900s, there's a string of forts across Montana, most of which house uh, the, the African-American regiments that are common, collectively known as the Buffalo Soldiers throughout most of the 1900s. So um, there's this huge variety. Um, and that variety, I think, leads to a, a real diversity of experience um, within the black community itself. So it's, I try to explode immediately the idea that somehow a black experience in Montana is monolithic um, in the first couple chapters before I do try to pinpoint and think about, well, what is in common? Um, but I hope at least I've succeeded in first kind of convincing everyone how, how much variety there was in uh, the homes and lives that people built and, here. And there was a, such a variety among uh, white settlers, the the, the mm -hmm. dominant settler community that mm -hmm. we're thinking of. But I want to ask about homesteading. And mm -hmm. was that an opportunity that was as open? Because, I mean, you could prove up theoretically mm -hmm. and and get mm -hmm. land. Was that a motivation for, for any or, or many African-Americans coming out? So there are a handful of black homesteaders that take advantage of um, the the first acts, uh, you know, in the 1860s and some of the renewed acts in the 1870s, um, but a, a, a relatively small number. Um, and by the 1900s, I, I think we start getting some sources that maybe intimate to us if we were to read into them that this is not a particularly open process in all instances, which we know it isn't in other parts of, you know, the Great Plains. There's extensive documentation of how difficult it is to truly, you know, take full advantage of the Homestead Act in places like the 
you know, Oklahoma, the former Indian Territory. Um, there's a lot of work that's been done on, on black uh, homesteaders that shows just how difficult that is. Um, I was intrigued when I came across uh, sources from like 1906 and onward, Montana's uh, Native American reserva- reservations here um, are a relative latecomers to the um, allotment process, um, which then they're all like adjudicated in, in courts um, and uh, tribes in Montana are fighting kind of bitterly to, to, uh, to resist allotment in some cases and push it off. So by the early 1900s, there are a number of, of reservations across the state um, that are you know reduced in size pretty dramatically. Um, and there are also you know, reservations in, in neighboring Idaho and Wyoming that are also kind of part and parcel of this. So I found sources from the black press in the early 1900s that are talking about this allotment process. Um, And it seems to me that early on, there must have been some problem with the the process and and really making it useful because they're really pushing, they kind of sound like almost old fashioned boosters. Um, They're really pushing uh, black settlers to go and make claims on land. And they're emphasizing the fact that, you know, in this process, you're not, no one can possibly know your race. It's just your name. There's no identification necessary. It's, it's, you know, a double blind draw and you'll just get the land and then you can, you know, try your best to prove up um, once you have it. And as far as I was able to determine, there are obviously individuals, people who do get homesteads, um, but it's not quite the same as uh, places like Eastern Dakotas or the Eastern Great Plains, where you do have a a larger number of, of Black homesteaders throughout the early 20th century. It really does seem to stay fairly small, so much so that, you know, you can point to a handful of families up by Great Falls. There's there are more. Um, I was intrigued, obviously, approaching it from this angle of settler colonialism, because this is, you know, this is like the the space between uh, settlement and the dispossession of indigenous lands is, is completely annihilated in these particular uh, circumstances. And so we have this example of, well, there are black settlers who are thinking consciously about indigenous lands. They're not just thinking about it as, you know, federal lands, um, you know, really removed from this process of, uh, native, uh, dispossession, but rather they're really thinking about it specifically within this colonial context. Um, so there's a lot of questions that are left unanswered, I think, in this debate, uh, we do have sources that are, you know, emphatically calling on, on black settlers, both from pre- papers in Montana, but also papers across the country, um, mm. calling on, on black settlers to go and claim Indian lands. Yeah, but, that's, yeah. sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, that's so that's so interesting. Yeah. And but I just wanted to back up a little bit and ask about, you know, when they when um, these um Black families, these these um, black men and women were coming into Montana. They were they weren't coming into um, a place where just white people lived. It was a very diverse setting they were coming right. into, and the the statistics you have in your book are really interesting in that. So I wanted you just to speak a little bit to that. Yeah, that that is I think actually really relevant to a question we might get to a little bit later on, like what do we make of all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not the world that of Montana, territorial Montana, and then early statehood in 1890 is not 
indigenous people kind of collected on a handful of reservations and then completely uniformly white in our current sense cities and then nothing else. Um, 1890, Montana is very close to, if not the most, um, it has the largest population of, of non-white, you know, foreign born or, or foreign born citizens. Um, so it's this, this mix of, you can go to a city like Butte, for example, and you will have a very large population of Chinese uh, laborers and immigrants and a large population of Chinese Americans were, you know, born within the United States. Um, you have large groups of uh, Hispanic peoples uh, and, and various workers and that are working through um, kind of early agricultural industries, especially in you know parts of the state, like around Billings. Um, you still have a lot of indigenous people who are not on reservations. That's kind of a, a myth, I think, that a lot of people have pointed out, especially by the 1890s, uh, uh, indigenous people are you know, working and living and traveling between uh, reservations often. So they would have been part of this, you know, everyday social fabric of Montana's uh, cities and towns. Then you have a very large population, you know, thousands of African-Americans all congregated, um, you know, most of them in only six or seven different towns across the state, which in these places, there's a little bit of my desire to be a historical geographer going on where you can imagine yourself walking through, you know, the historic downtowns, knowing that like beyond this, there might've been some houses, but people congregated here. And you think about this space um, and it's incredibly diverse. And then the white population living here would not have all been considered white. So many mm -hmm. of them would have been considered almost or not quite white or not really sure what to, to make of this. Sometimes uh, early censuses give us really great glimpses into people's racialist thinking where um, I'm working right now in uh, a census in Cheyenne, for instance, where the enumerator is trying to make sense of people from Eastern and Southern Europe. And he doesn't know if they're um, like, he wants to put Romani in, right, the, in, the, right. in the ethnic category, yeah. but he also mm -hmm. doesn't know if they're just Italians and he doesn't <laughs> seem to know how to ask them. So he yeah. just like, after a while of, of writing, R-O-M, he just like scratches and then just puts other, like he doesn't oh, know wow. what to do. Oh, gosh. Um, Interesting. So Montana, along with, I think Minnesota is the other state, um, mm. white, you know, traditionally like an Anglo-Saxon or Northern European uh, version of white at the time, um, native born American citizens would have been very close to not a majority in the right. state. Right. Um, so I think that entering it, allowing ourselves to like readjust to that historical yeah. reality and then allowing ourselves to readjust to that space um, is important. And I think you make such an interesting case that you look at Montana now and it yeah. just has such a tiny population, which is one of the things that got you interested, such a tiny population mm -hmm. of African-Americans. I mean, mm -hmm. we have our, our reservations filled with, you know, tribes um, that make up a proportion of the population, but to go from that diversity in our history mm -hmm. to where we are now, I think you're starting to give us those answers to that question of what happened. And before we um, get on to a next question, we're going to take a quick station break. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Anthony Wood about his new book, Black Montana. So so, Anthony, in, in your book, you talk a lot about colonial erosion. And um, 
Did you did you coin this term, colonial erosion? Well, it, before you answer, before you answer, let me finish my question. But um, can, can you tell us first what that means um, and what you mean by colonial erosion and what effects or consequences this has on the history of black communities in Montana? Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I think I coined the term, but it's not mine. I really adapted a very kind of a smattering of other academic jargony terms, which I was using to think about um, the way to view this history in both a past and a present sense. Um, So I came up with erosion because I think it was, you know, slightly more widely known. Uh, Some of my advisors liked it better than the, the post-colonial terms, which more or less did the same thing. Um, But it was this, it's almost like a metaphor where you can imagine that something is happening in the past. There's an action taking place and it's pretty well, it's uh, fairly constant. Um, And in fact, sometimes it's dramatic. uh, And then sometimes it's very subtle, like, you know, erosive events can be, you know, something as dramatic as massive floods or glacial. I mean, there's a pretty wide variety of how, this, this, uh, how actions can take place. So I like that as a metaphor to describe how is it that we can go from a space in the turn of the century, early 20th century Montana, where black communities, um, as far as I have been able to kind of glean from all the sources, seem to be growing in step, if not slightly faster than the, the white cities and towns in which they were both embedded and diffused. Um, and then suddenly after roughly like the interwar period, after the 1910s, and early 1920s, this really, it, it shifts, it takes a dramatic, you know, 180 degree turn. Um, and I had done some demographic work and realized like, okay, so this is not actually, this is not just some natural uh, demographic shift. That takes so you're place meaning by the dramatic economies. turn, just to be clear for our listeners, you mean mm-hmm. that the turn yeah. is that you have a lot of this diversity, you have substantial mm-hmm. percentage of populations mm-hmm. of African-Americans mm-hmm. and other groups. Mm-hmm. And then at that interwar period and after we see a dramatic difference, like it declines by 50% or something. Is, is it declines by 50%, which is, that's the, the population of, of African-Americans in Montana climbs by 50% by, you know, the post-war period, um, which is in one sense, half the, the, the black families and individuals who had been living here, you know, stayed. Um, but then half of them kind of have to, for various reasons, or choose to leave and go to other places. Um, so when I was thinking about a way to always keep this in mind, the the metaphor I kept coming back to was erosion because to me viewing this from the present, this had a direct impact. This loss, that, that dramatic shift had a direct impact on how people today conceive of black history in Montana at large, which is not something I think that a lot of uh, like local or state histories do. They don't make that move between like something back then now changes the way we view our our lived reality today. So I think right. this is where I, coming from public history, this is maybe not you know the, the the grad school theory didn't actually help. Coming from public history is where I made the jump that said there is a big disconnect 
um, that has something to do with these events in the past, has something to do with the way that racial ideology is working and informing everyday life in the early 20th century. And it is still informing the way, uh, my metaphor is that it had sedimented almost over and had mm. obscured this this past, the, the Black history in, in early 20th century, 19th century Montana. It had obscured that history from our focus so much so, so that a public history project whose entire goal was to find and locate these resources and tell these stories. Um, I was coming, we, we did that mapping project, which I mentioned in the, in the first kind of pages of the, of the book where we were looking at all the, the old buildings and all the houses and businesses and less than 20% of those that had been occupied some many of which within historic districts, so you would think would be you know preserved, uh, but less than twenty percent in Helena, and then some places in like uh, Billings and Missoula, it's much less uh, still exist. So that was the connection for me was thinking that like this past is curating our experience of why and how we talk about uh, Black history in the present. So I wanted a term that. You know, maybe I, I made too much of it early on, but I think it helps people like I use it over and over again, not to be jargony, but to remind them that like to make them think back and say, oh, this was the term that had something to do with how people in the present are kind of shut off from recognizing the importance or the kind of the the real um, significance. And of that's history. where trying to always keep the, the past relevant in the present, that public history mm-hmm. goal, I think um, is mm-hmm. so you, you lay that out in the very beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's what's so incredibly important. And I love that it's your connection of trying to take this, you know, archival historical data, but then the job of going out and actually locating buildings, that materiality is so important. And and then it's Mm -hmm. so glaring that these places are missing. Mm -hmm. And so we know in that period in the early 20th century, there were Ku Klux Klan all over different Mm -hmm. towns um, in the West. I think for me, that was kind of a shock to hear about coming from the East. I just didn't think those kinds of things went on out here. It wasn't sort of a history that I knew or understood or that was taught or told about. Um, but that certainly is part of what factors in when you're when you're talking about that. Um, but I want to also um, ask about, you know, several things that um, are part of what causes that erosion to, to accelerate and then causes that sedimentation, as you say, so nicely over that. Um, just before I get to the question, you know, you make a good point, too, that there weren't any people left by the time cultural preservation really became a thing to advocate for their own houses. So even within those historic districts, you're right. saying yeah. those are the buildings that are missing because there weren't really descendants right. or people culturally connected. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so I think that is, again, the story that takes us right to the present. But one of the things mm-hmm. that I um, really connected to in your book, because I also took a class where we read Peggy Pascoe's um, <sighs> What Comes Naturally. That book right. just changed so much for me, and I've actually one of talked the best to... books written in the last. 50 I years, seriously, I think I'm... everyone should read that book, and I I feel like we have to do something on it because I've talked yeah. to Crystal about it so many times. Uh, to me, to do a legal history that mm-hmm. so clearly lays out the wild and strange ways in which race is constructed literally constructed out mm-hmm. of nothing, out of thin air in the legal system, because people are trying to understand what to cause people mm-hmm. was coming through trying to 
it, figure out how to enforce uh, miscegenation laws, trying to figure out well, what race people are, because that whole idea of what race is, nobody knows who's the expert on race. They're inventing it at the time. Who are the experts? Nobody knows who to turn to. So to enforce the law, you have to actually then have somebody you had to call in. So anyway, this idea that certain people can't marry, right, is mm-hmm. one of these things. So you talk about the anti-miscegenation bill passed in Montana in 1909. Um, talk to us a little bit about that law, what it meant for interracial couples, what it meant to be single as a black man or a black woman, mm-hmm. and then when, and then bring us a little more present after that. Yeah, I think it's probably one of the most, it has its whole, its own chapter. So it's one of the most significant um, moments for black Montanans, both within interracial couplings and not. Um, I try to make the case that it's equally as impactful for the black community at large. Um, and you're right, using and, and kind of beginning this, that argument from Peggy Pascal's analysis about like, who is also, by the way, from Montana. She's from... Is she really? Oh, I didn't yes. know that. Oh, I didn't know wow. that either. Wow. Okay. We definitely have to yeah. So I'm, I'm from Anaconda. I do, like, you have some rivalry with you, but in this case, I will fully claim it. <laughs> um, her argument, I let her, yeah, her, the construction of race um, is obviously across the West is, is implemented at all kinds of levels of government and the state. Um, it's one of the things she argues that kind of forms the state in a lot of different places, something that had been, you know, maybe immaterial or ineffective becomes real and tangible through this yes. the process of legislating and, and trying to track down people who are violating anti-miscegenation codes. Um, I was interested really in thinking about the consequences of this law stemming and where they originated from in Montana's own really unique sense um, within a state that I argue throughout the book leading up to this point is operating by both kind of like anti-black racial logics, um, but also, you know, anti-indigenous colonial logics. So one of the things that is really fascinating about Montana is that the prior uh, 1907 legislative cycle this same senator, Senator Muffley of Broadwater County, brings up the, the bill to ban all uh, interracial marriages. But he included a ban on on white and indigenous marriages. And it is roundly defeated um, for that reason. So much so that he only changes those words for the next time and it passes in 1909. So there is something going on here with the way that Montanans through their legislative body are thinking about interracial marriage, thinking about interracial sexuality and all these kind of attendant uh, issues is still by 1907 deeply informed by a colonial logic that is concerned about native peoples. It's concerned about native lands. And I get into a lot of what's already, I didn't have to come up with this. A lot of great scholars have talked about uh, interracial uh, white indigenous uh, relationships, marriage, and how that has changed and why that matters. Um, so, and just so people who don't know, it's it's that idea of a, a white man marrying a, usually an indigenous woman is usually the right. way that goes because then mm-hmm. that that land that she has access to through her family mm-hmm. being a member of the tribe mm-hmm. allotment, all that stuff, mm-hmm. can pass into 
white his hands, hands, white hands, yeah. and they become and, and because so many people had those relations already by the time that law came up, that had no way of passing. There were too many people already invested too many, and embroiled. Yeah, yeah. Too many people. Would have been too yeah. complicated. So you just take that out of the mix. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure people were mm-hmm. still like, uh, about it, but they weren't going to go the legal route. Um, so there's so there many definitely contradictions. Definitely Republican yeah, legislators that pushed against it, but not enough. Right. Um, so then after kind of coming to terms with the fact that Montanans are, are still going to be constructing race in this colonial landscape, um, I did think about the connections between uh, what scholars call like elimination, like the idea of a to- totally exclusive uh, society for whites only, more or less, which is very different in, in some cases than what you see in uh, kind of a traditional southern paradigm where it's uh, segregation, impression, uh, exploitation for labor, and so on. Um, You have a series of of acts. The 1909 law, I think, is kind of the the quintessential one that suggests that it, it really, in the mind of many, especially powerful white settler elites, that this is no longer a space where they are in need of non-white peoples whatsoever. Um, and the fact that they, along with other Western states at this time, choose to go this route of banning interracial marriage, to me suggested that there's going to be actually effects beyond just these couples, of which we have, you know, a few dozen at the, at the time the bill is passed. Um, I do try to follow some of them to show that it is devastating for those individuals um so many of them do not remain in montana some of them divorced we don't under circumstances we're not you know privy to all the time but it is nevertheless that you know the data suggests that it's impactful and then i looked and thought about how marriage laws at large are also operating within kind of this gendered uh analysis where you can look and say, oh, well, how many single men, how many single women are living in places? Uh, now, if you follow that, you know, population of, of, of people through the years, what happens? And in Montana's Black community, um, the, the parity had almost kind of reached one-to-one, not quite in 1910, of as many Black women as Black men. Um, but there was a very large population of single uh men and women, you know, of marriageable age between, you know, 16 and, and 40 living in all of these cities. Um, Helena is like the hot spot of this, um, where over 30% of the population uh, is single and in this age range, which if you're a person moving, if you're someone, you know, making this long move, it is harder to do with a family, although people did it. So a lot of people are arriving as single. And whether or not they choose to remain in a place often has a lot to do with their future prospects of what home means to them. Um, I, it's hard to argue at this point that, you know, Montana society is not so wide open and kind of free of racialist thinking that uh, Black Montanans would have thought um, or wanted in any way to have been able to marry whoever they wanted, um, white or Black. But that did happen. And that was an option. And then when you close off that option, and now if you're a black person and only other uh, black people are your, um, you know, potential partners in life, then you start focusing very closely on what does this community look like? How stable is it? 
Um, and over the next 20 years after that bill is passed, for instance, in Helena, that population of single people um, crashes. It, I mean, it decreases by almost 80 percent mm. um, down to very few. So if we we're just looking at numbers alone, we have a story that I, I, I try to argue is connected to this to this legal history of the anti-miscegenation laws in Montana. Um, and I kind of end it by pointing out what life would have looked like as a young person at the end of this, this or in the middle of this period. Um, and I, I use a, a young man from Bozeman whose mother is sick and his father and her had been working as chefs and cooks in Livingston and commuting back and forth. And he is, he's a young man. He's only eight or 10 years old. And if you look at the census for that year and go through everyone's name, it's, it's a, temporary but nevertheless kind of devastating reality that there's not a single person living in Bozeman who he might one day legally marry um so and if you think about how far Bozeman is from other places you can kind of zoom out at the bird's eye view and then just wonder well how could this law not have affected him in some way even if it had never crossed his mind he was a young boy um his parents would have known his parents would have been aware of these things so their decision to move I think is Another story, another personal, to personalize this a little bit more, another story from Bozeman. Um, there's the, there's these three sisters um, from the McDonald family. And you talk about this a little in the book too, but there's these three sisters, um, Molly, Belle, and Melissa, who are, who grow up and become women, kind of come to age during this time frame, 1909, 1910, that, that one of the three sisters gets married. Molly mm-hmm. gets married, and she marries a, a man from Butte. So she goes to Butte to marry um, mm-hmm. and lives in Butte. But the other two sisters, Belle and Melissa, never marry. They mm-hmm. never marry, and they live in Bozeman the rest of their lives um, yeah. together and, and don't marry. And I think that's a really good example of what happens with this miscegenation law. I think that... Um, they, they, you know, they had no one like the young man that you talked about before. They didn't really have anyone yeah. in They were Bozeman. quite a bit older than him, too. Yeah. They were living in Bozeman at the same time. So he would have been a child when they were in right, right. kind of middle age. Right. And they just yeah. didn't have they didn't have many options if they wanted to leave Bozeman. They did. But living here in Bozeman, they didn't. They mm-hmm. did travel around a lot. But um, I think they're a good example mm-hmm. of that. Can I as throw well. in another one? Yeah. You mentioned yeah. Sarah Bickford and her her daughters who she well, married. Oh, yes. And I'm Go wondering, ahead. just yeah. given and I'm trying to remember the age at which they would have come to be. A marriageable age and you mm-hmm. said she she really married them all off mm-hmm. out of state east mm-hmm. and i have no idea if, if the timing mm-hmm. is right but i wonder and she purposely wanted them to marry black, black men, men. Mm-hmm. yeah so she she and her husband she married a white man um before the anti-miscegenation laws passed um and he actually died in 1900 so quite a few years but but her mm-hmm. daughters um definitely were in that time frame. And so uh, they ended up, she she really encouraged them to meet black men and really, um, I would say, like you said, pushed them to uh, look beyond Montana and to look mm-hmm. back east. And that's where they did marry. Um, yeah. And I think there's, there's a positive, like there is the good, the good story where it's John and Annie um, 
Williams from Missoula, which I always, I do hold as like this one shiny, like their, their marriage was nullified in 1909. They had been married since 1870 and they remained married for a very long time until, so for this, this law bisects a marriage that lasts 69 years. Oh my gosh. Um, and they did not care and they lived. <laughs> uh, so there is, there were people who managed to kind of weather, to use my kind of the erosion metaphor, that did weather it or because they had the right type of friends and community around them uh, were not as vulnerable to the horrible erosive effects of these actions. Um, but other people uh, very clearly were so. And I think this, this chapter is... Um, it's making a lot of kind of attendant arguments around uh, the law itself, just about interracial couples um, and the significance of thinking um, about sexuality and gender as we study the past. Um, so I think to, to yeah, if there's, there's a lot more I would right. say about it, but I don't, it, yeah, it's yeah. just oh, right. But it's, I think to live in a place where the people who are making the laws are making a law that impacts who you can love, who you can be with, and and it it then requires a classification of who you are as a, as mm-hmm. a human based on this this thing mm-hmm. called race, you know, which mm-hmm. you don't even have to be very black to be black, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, whatever that means anyway. And I just I I find what just that must have done to the psyche, you know, regardless of whether you were married to another person who was considered. Mm-hmm of your same race or not, I think it could, it would have just felt horrible because you know who it's, who it's targeted at and what it's trying to prevent. Um, so I want to ask you about another chapter that we, um, we, we think is interesting. And I heard you present on this when you were here at MSU and, and you were working on it. And I, I just found it one of the most fascinating things. You do talk about magpies in this chapter. So I'm talking about your wilderness chapter and um, unpacking that word has always been fascinating to us. And we've had um, Laurel Angel on in an earlier podcast and really talked about um, Bill Cronin's essay, you know, and, and the trouble with wilderness and that whole concept and how it's an invention in and of itself. But a part of that that you delve into is racializing nature and this mm-hmm. myth of wilderness, myth of white wilderness. Um, so talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what you do in the book regarding that. Yeah, so this was a really fun chapter. It's my favorite to, it was my favorite to edit and rewrite and work over again. Um, it does begin with a long extended metaphor of magpies <laughs> um, and I never actually really do an environmental history of magpies to Mark Fiji's, you know, great uh, chagrin, but it, it makes, uh, I think an argument for if we're going to think about wilderness or just kind of nature with a capital N as being this human socially constructed idea, um, how it becomes constructed the way it, is and exists for us today has a history and um i'm not i'm one in a very long line of people who say well that history is also racial and what does it look like so this was my kind of you know brick in the wall of that now a mountain of scholarship talking about kind of the racialized uh wilderness and outdoor experience um one of the things that i think becomes more clear through studying Black history in, in outdoors and nature or wilderness context 
um, is that the, the, the way it is racialized is still embedded in the colonial history. Um, but at the same time, these very colonial tropes, uh, these very colonial ways of seeing the world um, and engaging with the natural world in Montana, you would expect them to be primarily this white indigenous uh, binary. Um, mm-hmm. That's the one that kind of occupies the most, you know, number of pages in all the books that people write about uh, wilderness, especially in its Western context. Um, but as I kind of go through, I, I find one particular metaphor, the magpie, and how early Montana's uh, early conservationists regarded the bird, what they thought they needed to do about it, um, was not a perfect indigenous uh, racialist ideology of thinking about, you know, the, the erosion or the, the elimination of native peoples mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. eventual fading of, of Indians in the land, which there are a lot of good uh, environmental histories that talk about that as its kind of paradigm. But instead, I found it really closely uh, mirroring the ways that uh, American popular culture had racialized other birds like magpies, crows, jays as primarily African-American. So the argument I make in in that chapter is that as uh, white conservationists go out with their colonial logics, they also have an anti-Black racialist uh, mindset as well that causes them to confront the natural world, confront a problem they see as a problem in the natural world. These magpies who are now certain, suddenly killing a lot of sheep and destroying crops and eating all the eggs of the, the birds they want to hunt for fun. Um, and they immediately plug it right into this very long history of racializing non-white peoples as animals and part of nature. And then their response is, we'll just kill all the magpies. Um, So it was actually a very unsettling as much as it was shocking to encounter sources, the the gun and rod clubs, you know, these sportsmen associations across the state that they're this, when they encounter this, this uh, bird, which had been, you know, living with them for a very long time, hundred years at this point, and suddenly they realize that this is a little anachronistic. This bird doesn't need to be here. It doesn't do anything for us. Their reaction was profoundly violent. Um, some would say genocidal. Um, and that was one of these, like, that's a, that was my metaphor to get into. Okay. If this is the world of early conservation in some ways, if this is part of the baggage that they're carrying, what does a black wilderness experience change, alter, add to the, the way we need to think about how wilderness is constructed today. Um, so part of that, obviously, is that wilderness is still considered to be kind of the domain of whiteness in America, as much as people are now working to reverse those, those ways of thinking. Um, it has a lot to do with, you know, this, it's long history of, uh, of, of racism going all the way back to the, you know, early 1900s as well um yeah at the same time i didn't want to leave it there i wanted to say well no well we're going to find these same experiences and see what they meant maybe uh for the the black community which was the rest of the chapter (laughs) right and you do a really nice job talking about experiences of african-americans that were in montana outside of cities and towns, what their experiences were of being out in nature, being out in parks, being out their conceptions of what it meant mm-hmm. to, to be in those spaces. And I, 
I just want to say, you know, this this focus on public history is so important because even though we talk about that scholarship already being, you know, mm-hmm. a, a bit of a mountain for those of us, um, I have still been in many places where, you know, you're around the public and you mentioned mm-hmm. that wilderness is, is a construct and it's uh, crickets to sort of make a joke about that. But it's right. literally people don't get what you're talking about. They're, they're still yeah. firmly in the idea that wilderness is wilderness. It's pristine. And so I think there's still a lot of, of work to be done there. And I think adding in this racialized element is, you know, we've seen this over the last decade, but it's just only now really, mm-hmm. I think, becoming a bigger part of public histories um, in the parks and in places where people encounter it. Um, so I think it's a, it's an excellent chapter to have in the book and so important, you know, to speak to. Yeah, yeah. So I want to kind of come back to one thing you were saying earlier, um, Anthony, about how when you were working in Helena, you were going back to these neighborhoods to try to locate some of these houses that African-American people lived in and grew up in and died in. And many of them were gone and not just the their houses, but their community buildings and their mm-hmm. other structures. And, you know, um, um, here in Bozeman, We've been doing a lot of work on Bozeman's African-American community, which was much smaller than Helena's community or Butte's community or Great Falls's community, but significant nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been trying to uh, find this history and document this history on Bozeman's African-American community. And the same thing happened when we started doing that, which is when you were um, working with us, we went to try to locate some of these houses, some of these buildings. And of course, they're, they're either extremely modified or gone. And mm-hmm. so we, but we did a walking tour anyway, because we thought it was so important to talk about where this community had been. Mm-hmm. And usually a walking tour, you have um, some houses to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> but in this one, we had very few, we had maybe two mm-hmm. or three houses that were still there from the time when people um, historically lived in them. And so I think, you know, that just struck me when you were talking about that earlier and, and thinking back to it, the walking tour, we still do, but, um, Mm -hmm. but it's, you know, it's an important uh, lesson that these houses had, these communities haven't been saved. They haven't been preserved. Um, but that doesn't stop us from talking about that community for sure. And so, mm-hmm. um, I was so excited to see in your, in your book that you talked a little bit about Bozeman's historic, mm-hmm. uh, black community mm-hmm. and, um, the name, especially Lizzie Woods, um, when I saw that in the index, Lizzie Williams, I'm sorry, not Lizzie, Woods. <laughs> that's another historic character, but Lizzie Williams. Yeah. Thanks, Nancy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Lizzie Williams, it just made my heart fall because it was so nice to see history that Extreme History Project has been mm-hmm. uncovering and and interpreting kind of make it, you know, into a book, into print. To see that mm-hmm. history in print is powerful. And yeah. so I just wanted to um, thank you for putting Lizzie Williams' name in the book. Oh, of course. Yeah. It would, yeah. it That one was a no-brainer. Um it would also fit very nicely in my argument about there are some people, uh, especially in the 1870s, black women have some of the only presence in scholarship that people have been writing about. Um, sometimes it's because they did lots of, you know, important things or they were the first, uh, you know, this or that, you know, Mary Fields, the first federal mail carrier or Sarah Gammon Bickford, uh, like, you know, someone who owned a, utilities company but lizzie williams 
really, I think, comes to us, we only know her name because of you, but also because she left a will. And I thought that was such an interesting, just like one single document. And that however close, however many times we came to losing it at some point, um, one single document is all that remains of, of her life and a very impactful and important story, which you've been able to, to pull together and, and kind of, I think, make a really good argument for how significant uh, she was to the community of Bozeman existing <laughs> for a very rough period of its history, which I tried right, to give right. voice to, to point out, like, this is the, she's serving a very standard and vital uh, purpose in her community of kind of investing and going out on a limb and putting money up for buildings and businesses and so on that without if without a concentration of people doing that there's not there's a lot of towns that disappeared <laughs> during this same period so i think i think there's a number of great uh opportunities ahead for you i'm still on, in favor of eighth avenue being renamed um <laughs> so i think you should try and do that <laughs> so I, I will have a, a street named after her if it yes. kills me <laughs> someday someday there will right, be a lizzie we gotta, williams we gotta start that one i have to say we're getting fascinated with her and for me it, it kind of re-peaked after we um interviewed taya miles for the podcast because mm-hmm. she she does that beautiful story mm-hmm. where you know from that one embroidered um, sack. She tells the mm-hmm. story of Rose and is it um, Ashley? Ashley? Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, and then she finds this way, even though she can't say for sure whether she's found um, Rose in that census, and can't say exactly who she was. Um, owned by as a slave, mm-hmm. we know that she was able to piece together so much to say, well, she was very like this, and she would have been somebody in a house in, in mm-hmm. the city of Charleston. And so it got us thinking again about Lizzie Williams coming out here somehow with money. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the age she is and where she came from, because she's listed as being born in Kentucky, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that she um, had all the skills needed to run a restaurant and a boarding house, which makes me think she was most likely a Enslaved. servant. In a, yeah. So we're starting to kind of rethink about mm-hmm. Lizzie and how to tell that story, Crystal was thinking, yeah. using these ideas that came out of Taya's book. Because I think there's so many ways to give life, but yeah, I but- feel like she's this remarkable person. From Given what we can assume she came from, somehow she gets all the way out here mm-hmm. and ends up in Bozeman with property on Main Street, running a successful mm-hmm. business. And then, like you said, mm-hmm. this this will, a funeral, all this. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean, she's a fascinating mm-hmm. character and we need to bring her back a little bit yeah. more forcefully into the present, I think. I think so too, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and her grave, her, she has a headstone and that's the thing, that's where we, that's I, where I, I first saw her name was on that headstone and that and then she is in census records you know it's all these little bits and pieces you know but the the her probate record is her will yeah. um is the most powerful document and the yeah. one that leads us down all these other little rabbit holes but you know i think that that is powerful to bring these names back into our historical narrative and to then rise them up to the top of the historical narrative you know and really learn our histories from these 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 um powerful community members and Lizzie's one of those. Lizzie Williams is one of those powerful community members and we for that documentary that we're um filming we interviewed Mary Murphy mm-hmm. and uh, Mary said in her interview that hopefully doesn't 
land on the cutting room floor. Hopefully this snippet will make it into the film, but she talked about how we need to redefine our heroes and we need to reevaluate who our heroes are. And that really struck a chord with me. And I think that Lizzie Williams is definitely one of those heroes. And and hopefully um, she'll rise up as one of those heroes and be um, someone that all Bozeman school children learn about when they're going through fourth grade here in Bozeman. So, Anthony, you answered part of this question before, but I want to have the second part of this question, and that is, so we've talked around this a lot, lot, but where did, where do you think these African-American populations went? Where do you think these people, why do you think these people left, and where did they go? Well, there's, as I've been kind of working through this and then this subsequent dissertation project, it's still a question that I come to. Um, a lot. And in very practical terms, you can point to the kind of the booming economies of other places as being just a bigger draw. Um, You can also think about the way Black communities in especially Western and West Coast cities start to grow um, kind of precipitously during the Great Migration. So after for Western Great Migration, so after 1920, especially. Um, And then, so there's kind of these pull factors, which are economic and community. And so in some sense, very practical. Um, But that that has often been the main way that historians who have talked about Montana's Black community before have kind of regarded it, that it must have been too great a pull to other places. So it's, it's not... You know, there's a lot of people who go to Washington State to work in, you know, kind of emergent shipping industries. There's a lot of people who move to California cities. There's a lot of people who move down to Denver, which is Denver becomes pretty uh, large and attractive black um, community in the Five Points neighborhood after the 20s and 30s and continues to grow through World War II era. Um, and there's there's a lot of helpful bits of that argument. Um, but I think that when I got to, you know, the night, the year of 1917 in the book, kind of in the last chapter where I thought about, okay, well, this is the point in which the, the migration really moves out of Montana where almost half or more than half of uh, black Montanans leave the state. I had already established and had been thinking about for so long, this idea of being at home um, that I really couldn't. And I don't think people after reading would agree, would, you know, disagree with me, it, you can't just say, oh, it must have been some other pull factor um, because we have this history of, you know, 40 years or more of these people like scratching out the ability and, and the, the capability to call a place home. Um, and not everyone chose to leave it, um, but it certainly wouldn't have been an easy choice for those who did. So I, I think that there's more to the equation. There, there are pushes, there are this kind of this accretion sedimentation of, of racism in Montana that's kind of starting to imbue everyday life. There are environmental components where, you know, this drought that happens across much of the state in 1917, followed quickly by the Western half of the state experience, intense labor uh, strife and upheaval in its mining and timber industries, um, 
is is causing a lot of demographic changes. So the homesteading boom because of the drought, because of the economic busts that happen, it collapses. The bubble bursts in the 1917 to 1920 uh, timeframe. And I did I did weeks of research to find one sentence in the book, which was that about 40 percent of the of the white homesteaders who were on Montana's mostly on the, the Upper Plains homesteading um, when they lost their their homesteads were unable to kind of make a go of it. About 40 percent of them moved to Montana's cities and then. In the end, in the last chapter, I kind of begin with this this person who is uh, emblematic of that shift, a, a Norwegian American uh, who you know settled in Shoto County, loses his he proves up in 1916, which is terrible timing, and then loses his homestead in uh, 1921, moves to Great Falls and becomes a porter at a hotel, which so many of the people in the pages before that are porters in hotels. It's one of these positions that, that African-Americans were able to cobble together with other work to make something like a middle-class existence where they could own homes and have, you know, you know, an extensive life in this place. And then you just start seeing so many of those people and those types of economic uh, straits leave. So I, I pair uh, his name is Sven Bausti, the Norwegian. Um, I, I, I pair his story with uh, Jefferson and Louise Harrison. And Jefferson was uh, a 27-year veteran of the of the 24th Infantry and had worked, you know, in hotels and clubs in Helena for decades. And he owned his home on the west side, very close to where I lived when I was going to college, um, in this neighborhood of retired black soldiers. And then in 19. 19- 21, almost at the exact moment that Stenbowski is hired in a hotel, he loses his job as a porter and they, him and his wife get on a train and leave. And there's, so it is economic, certainly if they had had the money to stay, there's, there's no, there's no way to, you know, disprove that they wouldn't, more people wouldn't have have chosen to, to remain in Montana and become, you know, as Wallace Stegner called them stickers. I liked that. Uh, the way that he framed it, because we often imagine that African-Americans in Montana, if we think about them at all, it's that they w- were boomers. They came and worked in these huge boom economies. And when those booms inevitably and naturally, in some cases, turned to big busts, then they just moved on. And our sense of state and regional history has wrongly placed them in this category where if there were African-Americans living and working um, in this place, that it was only temporary and it was only ever going to be temporary, which is something I push hard. I can't push hard enough against that notion, Um, not only because if 50 percent of people don't leave, um, it doesn't continue to grow in step. Uh, Those cities that I talk so much about in the book, um, the incredible thing that we need to recognize is those cities were growing because of these big influxes. So you would expect there to still be opportunities for people to, to make, you know, to make a go of it and make home in these spaces. But obviously all these other racial logics had just been piling up um, and it made it very difficult to both continue economically, but also socially, um, you know, in to use the magpie chapter, you know, the cultural unifiers that, that the black community had crafted out of the wilderness experiment experience 
was firmly being denied and under attack by those same racial thinkings and, and ways of viewing the world that their neighbors would have kind of placed on similar events. So going out and camping and hunting, that was something that, you know, middle-class white people did to show their, their race and their class position. Um, I think all of these things need to be taken into account. So when we talk about kind of this, this exodus, um, because it does take place and it's real and people who are living here leave and then it's so hard to find them. And we know some people we've managed to find them and track them down and their descendants. And then so many, the vast majority of people kind of disappear into this historical record. And that's another, like that, that was my last argument about erosion was like, that is in itself this, this erosive uh, design of, of settler colonialism kind of, and how it works in the actual world. Um, so, yeah. So for me to try to sum up what you said, I feel like in downtown Bozeman, I often encounter people who say they're sixth generation, seventh generation, and inevitably right. they're white, yes. right? Or they could probably <laughs> even tell me, though, where what European mm-hmm. country their ancestor came mm-hmm. from who settled here. And um, mm-hmm. you don't often mm-hmm. – I have never encountered anyone who's black in Montana who says they're sixth or seventh generation. And I think mm-hmm. originally the the – answer used to seem to be, like you said, well, Mm -hmm. people didn't stick. They came with the boom. They just left. They Mm -hmm. weren't homesteaders or whatever. And and we're finding that's not really the case. Like there were these tough times and then you layer on Mm -hmm. that racism. That's part of the story that hasn't really been told. Mm -hmm. It becomes um, Mm -hmm. levels more difficult because you probably don't have the full Mm -hmm. breadth of that wider Mm -hmm. community to help you through those tough times. I've traced the histories of some of these white folks who've had to sell their homesteads and move into something else. Mm -hmm. And, but they've been able to do that because they were accepted Mm -hmm. in other parts of the community and find different opportunities. So, so I was going to ask you, um, and I hope I haven't answered my own question, but for in terms of a public history message, what do you most want people to know about black Montanans from from all of the research you've done so far? What are the things that you'd want people to take away? That's a good question. Um, I think I think fundamentally I want, if people approach it that way and think about, oh, well, how does this history continue to kind of impact my life and how I live and move in this world? Um, it's that there is these questions that often, as you mentioned, uh, you might run into someone on the street and they might ask, when I did your walking tour, it was a question that was asked every time, whenever I got to mention African-Americans, um, which was, you know, more or less, well, why did they go? Um, and were there ever any African-Americans here in the first place? Those questions that people ask that the public generally asks, um, I would like if, if people who read the book or talk about the book with other people, um, that that is that question itself cannot just be left as one of our kind of novel, quirky, unanswered historical questions, which you might have as you try past right. the place. Oh, I wonder what that is. And then you don't care about it anymore. Like this is not an acceptable category for those types of questions. Um, and the, the question about the history of black Montanans and in, in the book, I call it Black Montana, like this entity, which 
it's kind of a device in some ways. I'm trying to think about this community that had kind of common origins and experiences to a certain extent, but it does not encompass all of African-Americans living in Montana by any means. Um, that the, this book for those people who have that question is a useful starting point to then question what happens next. Um, there is obviously a hundred years of history after 1920 when I pretty much end the book um, that takes place. Uh, and it, all, Montana has, you know, it's black history of the last 100 years, which I don't really touch. I come to it in the epilogue or in, in the in the last chapter really briefly in a couple instances, but there is so much to continue to investigate. Um, so many of the houses, which I hope someday will have signs in front of them as part of these historic districts in every major city in the state. Um, so many of them will not be from this era. They won't be from, you know, the 1900s or the, you know, the 1890s, because those are the ones that have lost, you know, kind of most consistently lost. They might be families who grew up, you know, going to Carroll in the 60s, or they might have been, you know, families of, you know, people who had that house in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Now it's historic as well. So it's going to continue to, I think, press on people's lived experience in Montana and what it means um, to think about this place as a place where more than just yourself calls it home. I mean, it's a really diverse uh, place and that it, it the, what it means to be at home in this place, I hope, um, is itself a public history question um, in some way. Um, but this book kind of points us to a new way of thinking about that same question that likely people have never come to with, you know, looking for those answers. They've never come to the history of Black Montana wanting to find out Know, how do people live more? You know, yeah, they think people didn't want to farm, or they didn't the like the cold, or like they they come up with some weird little. Oh, and to totally know, yeah, in the, south, the, the, the stereotypes. Exactly, yeah. and I I think that's a, a huge thing is to myth bust those stereotypes, mm -hmm. Anthony. It's it's actually still so prevalent, and the fact that you were getting those questions and those questions still come up is is uh, just testament mm -hmm. to how wonderful it is now to have a book yes. you can point people towards. Yes. So thank you so much, Anthony. We're, we're, we're close to the end of our time here, but I just want to encourage people to go out and buy Anthony's book. Again, the name is Black Montana, Settler Colonialism and the Erosion of the Racial Frontier, 1877 to 1930. So, and, and Anthony, um, do you have a website? I do. I do have a website now. Um, it is anthonywwood.com. So, simple enough my middle initial is in there um and you can go there for kind of other upcoming events i'm doing um let's see i'm doing a lecture in october in bozeman um, i get to be in person so that will be fun um for the doig center That'll be wonderful. Um, i think that's on the 19th i'll have uh at least another kind of short little radio bit coming out and then later the the montana book festival i'm doing a q a um which is, I think, going to be moderated by uh, Dr. Tobin Shearer, who's the director of the African-American Studies Department in Missoula and joined by uh, a member of the, the, the Black Studies uh, program as well. And we'll talk about the book, but also hopefully more about just like in this current moment, reading and learning and teaching Black history in Montana and the West. Uh, so and yeah, that has upcoming dates and links and all 
the fun stuff there. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thanks. It, it was so nice to see you on Zoom and so nice to get to visit with you today, Anthony. It was wonderful to see you both again. Um, hopefully I get to see you in person, you know, in the future here soon. So Sometimes I'm only in so. Helena now. I'm much closer than Ann Arbor, but yes. still kind of. <laughs> yes, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's that's yeah. wonderful. Yes. And good luck on finishing your PhD as well. Thank you so much. Yes. So thank you, Anthony. And thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week. And if you would like to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, we would love that as well. We also have a Facebook page called The Dirt on the Past. So make sure to find it and like it as well. Thanks for listening today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about The The Dirt Dirt on the Past. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin. Thanks to Lawson Alegria for the music, and to John Chadwell for help getting this podcast out in the world. (laughs) 